Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. Every pastor and preacher uh, remembers their first sermon. Uh, For me, it was in November of 1983. Um, U2 was making a splash, and uh, our church dedicated a Wednesday night to three of us, young men, who felt God was calling us to be preachers and proclaimers of the gospel. They gave us each 15 minutes. I was third in line. The first guy went five minutes. That's how nervous he was. The second one did a little bit better. He went eight minutes. So when it came my turn, I did the math and said 10 minutes from the first guy, seven from the second guy, that's 12. See, that's, uh, well, now I can't add, but that's 17 plus my 15. That gives me 32 minutes, and I went to town. (laughs) You know, um, this is Peter's first public sermon that we know of. It's definitely the first evangelistic sermon under the new covenant, and it is a doozy. Peter is preaching at Pentecost. Now, Pentecost, just to set the context, was an important day within the Jewish uh, religious calendar. It was also called the Feast of the Harvest. It was the, the, when they would gather the early first harvest of the wheat, and they would come together, and they would celebrate, and they would thank God for the harvest that was beginning and implore Him to give them a good harvest. It was the, it was the culmination of 50 days, and that's where we get the word Pentecost, of 50 days of celebration and of worship and festivals. It was kicked off uh, at the Feast of the First Fruits. 50 days earlier, on the Sunday uh, after Passover, what we would call Resurrection Sunday. So on the Sunday that Jesus was resurrected from the dead was the Sunday that in the Jewish festival calendar they observed the Feast of the First Fruits. This was where their barley harvest would come in. And how fitting is it that Jesus was resurrected on the day when they would celebrate the Feast of the First Fruits? Because as we know, Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 would say, Jesus is the first fruits from among the dead, the first fruits of our future resurrection. And so that festival, that feast of the first fruits, was looking towards that day when Jesus would be resurrected on that day, which would kick off these 50 days of celebrations and festivities. You know, God's calendar and timing and redemptive plan, there's just such synchronicity here. And so here we come at the end of this 50 days, Jerusalem is filled and packed with worshipers. The Holy Spirit descends upon the 120 followers of Jesus that are in that upper room, and they leave that upper room when with power they begin to proclaim the gospel. And Peter, he gives an answer as he's preaching and proclaiming Jesus as that first fruits, as the resurrected Messiah who they had crucified. Conviction takes hold in the life of the, of the hearers, and they ask him the question, Sir, what shall we do? 
And it's in Peter's answer to that question that I want us to uh, part this morning. And I want us to apply it to one of the goals that our church's leadership has given to us that indicate the fulfillment of our vision of all things new, 50 by our 50th. A couple of weeks ago, I introduced to you a vision statement that's on the screen behind me that kind of paints a picture of what we believe God can do in our church over the next 10 years when we turn 50 years old. You know, there's a couple of presuppositions that undergird this vision of our church. The first presupposition is that all of us who are members of this church, who are part of this body, we have been broken by sin. We are no different than those who are outside of our church when it comes to the human condition. We all are on level ground before the cross. We have been broken by sin. Our brokenness looks differently from one person to the next. But what we all have in common with everyone in our church, outside of our church, is that the radical, pervasive brokenness of sin affects each and every one of us. The difference is that because we're following Christ and we have him as our Lord and Savior, we are being restored by Jesus through the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. That presupposition undergirds this vision. There's a second presupposition, and that is that God intends to use each of us to bring someone else who has been broken by sin to Jesus Christ. This is part of the calling of all of us to be ambassadors for Jesus Christ, fulfilling the Great Commission. And so, if we carry out the mission of our church to bring gospel restoration to people's deepest needs, we know and we believe that God is going to work through us in a mighty way, in a, in a very tangible way, in fact, in a measurable way. We ought to be able to see that, yes, God is at work and the vision is being accomplished. And so, we have four goals. We, we introduced the first of them last week, new followers. The idea that over the next 10 years, by the time we turn 50, we believe that God will use at least 50 of us in this room or those who may come in the next few years to bring other adults to Jesus Christ and into discipleship. And this goal is that 50 new believers adult believers will be led to Christ by someone sitting in these chairs this morning. That's our first one. Then there's new generations. There's new followers. There's new generations. 50 of our children in our church would be led to Christ by mom and or dad, by their parents. Oftentimes, our children right now, when they come to Christ, they come to Christ because mom and dad bring them to me or they bring them to uh, the youth person or Jonathan or another pastor, another elder. And we want to flip that script so that parents understand and see their calling to be the disciplers and the evangelizers of their children. Peter's sermon, it gives us great encouragement and assurance that having our children included in the vision of God, that this pleases God, and it is fulfilling a vital aspect of the new covenant. This first new covenant sermon preached to this crowd that are not believers, there's applications for us this morning. I want us to see the covenantal opportunity that we have and also what our covenantal focus should be. But let's start with this idea of assurance, the covenantal assurances and encouragement that we have in this passage that God includes our children in the new covenant community. 
Verse 39 says, for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. I am so glad that that last little phrase is included, all who are far off. It's a, past, it's a phrase that appears in different places in the Bible. For example, in Ephesians chapter, excuse me, uh, yeah, well, I'm, hey, write that down real fast. <laughs> should, have, should have advanced the slides a little quicker. In Ephesians chapter two, verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And he came and he preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who are near. You know, in this first sermon of the New Testament, we see that the new covenant is much more inclusive and expansive than the old covenant was. Under the old covenant, the focus was on the Jews, the Israelites. The old covenant had to do with ethnic participation in the nation of Israel. And when you converted, if you were a, a Philistine or Egyptian or an Edomite or someone else, when you converted, you went through the process of becoming a citizen of the nation of Israel, a Jew. And then you were considered Jewish and you had all of the restrictions and the requirements and the parameters that were part of the old covenant applied to you and you became a Jew. The new covenant is very different. Under the new covenant, the grace of God comes to Jews and Gentiles alike. That's why this phrase, um, all those of you who are far off, are so important. Because unless you are Jewish this morning, without this phrase, we would not have that assurance in this passage that we're included in the new covenant. But this very phrase, right from the get-go in the very first new covenant sermon, says the new covenant isn't no, is no longer just for the nation of Israel. It's for all the nations because God is calling people from every nation, tribe, and people. And so for most of us this morning, because we are not Jewish, maybe there's a few Jewish uh, believers in our congregation this morning, for most of us, it's vitally important that we have this phrase in here because we are included in the new covenant. The inclusiveness of the new covenant goes though beyond Jew and Gentile. It also applies to male and female, and we see this work its way out in the book of Acts, for example. You see women taking on roles within the church that were not done in the Old Covenant. It's male and female, many of those barriers are now eradicated, and it's more inclusive, uh, rich and poor, bond and uh, slave people and free people, and of course, Jew and Gentile. But that inclusiveness also applies to our children, the phrase, <clears throat> this promise is for you and for your children. That would have been a very important phrase to this original audience. You see, in the Old Covenant, God included the children, especially the male, the boy children, were kind of on center stage in the Old Covenant. If you go to Genesis chapter 17, when God established the Old Covenant with Abraham, he says to Abraham, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. In Acts 2, the new covenant and the fact that the Messiah has come, he was crucified by you, and that, but God has raised him from the dead, and this is the implication as to eternal life. As Peter is proclaiming this new day, this new covenant, 
it would be natural for that original audience, those Jewish men and women who had been raised under the old covenant where children had had a place to have that question in their minds. Do our children now have a place within the new covenant? The new covenant had been promised and prophesied in the old. Now it's here. What role do our children have in the new covenant? Well, just as the new covenant is more inclusive when it comes to nationalities and ethnicities, Jew and Gentile, those barriers are broken. Barriers between male and female, the same is true for our children. The new covenant is more inclusive than the old covenant as it applies to our children. In the old covenant, the sign of that covenant was circumcision, and it could only be applied, obviously, boys, because they didn't have gender identity things going on apparently in the Old Testament. And so the sign of the Old Covenant was applied to boys. But just as, as circumcision was the sign of the Old Covenant, in the New Covenant we have a sign we saw this morning, baptism. We have to understand that in a covenant, whenever God made a covenant, he always gave an external sign to indicate what was going on. Go back to the book of Genesis, and you see God making a covenant with Noah after the flood. And he makes a covenant, and he says, never again will I destroy the earth by water. And here is my sign that this is true. What was the sign? Tell me. Rainbow, right, exactly. So there's always an external sign associated with the covenant that God makes. In the old covenant, it was circumcision. In the new covenant, it is baptism. You see, baptism before you think of it being anything other than this, here's fundamentally what it is. It is the sign of the new covenant. And so everything that circumcision was in the old covenant, baptism is in the new covenant. But this sign is more inclusive. Why? Because baptism can be applied to everyone based off of their biological gender, male or female. There's no restrictions here. Our girls, our boys, both can now receive the sign of the covenant and participate and become members of the new covenant family of God, his church. I'm glad, personally, I'm glad that an aspect of our vision centers on our children. Why? Because children are important to God. He, he forms our children in the womb. He loves them deeply. We have a story in the New Testament of Jesus and his disciples. They're interacting with the, the followers and people who were coming to hear Jesus. And as was the custom of the day, parents would bring their little children, their babies and their little ones to the, to the teacher, to the rabbi, and they would want, a, or to the priest, and they would want that priest to bless them, much like what we do here on the stage this morning. And so they brought their little children to Jesus, and the disciples got in the way. They said, you know what, he's too busy for this. Leave him alone. And one of the few times that you see Jesus get angry. He gets angry a few times in the Bible. His, his anger is righteous anger and it's righteous indignation. And he gets angry at his disciples and he says to them, what do you think you're doing? They'll stop the children. And this is exactly what he says. He says they were bringing children to them and the disciples were rebuking people from trying to have Jesus touch them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and he said to them, let the children come to me. What a great phrase. Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, 
For to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and he blessed them, laying his hands upon them. What a beautiful picture of our Savior, of our God. And it indicates the special place that our children have in the heart of God. He wants our children to be included in this new covenant family, the church, not left out, until they make their own personal decision to trust in Christ and to believe. You see, I was raised in a different tradition than I pastored in that tradition. If you go back, and its roots are back into the 1500s. If you go back to the 1500s, there was a change in church history. There was a group that arose called the Anabaptist. The Anabaptists, and, and then late, late, later on, other Baptistic denominations took teachings from them, not all of them, but some, but essentially say this, that a person does not become a member of God's church until they personally trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and then are baptized. So your children, if you're a part of that church, your children can be nurtured by people in the church, they can be taught and loved on, but they cannot be a part, a member of that covenant church and that covenant family until they themselves make a decision to trust in Jesus Christ. And while I love my brethren and brothers and sisters who hold this idea, I think it does a disservice to our children because the evidence that we have in Scripture from Old Testament and New is that our children have membership in the visible church of God. Now, not the invisible church of God. The invisible church are only those people who truly believe and trust in Jesus Christ. But we have to acknowledge that in every church where there's membership, you're going to have members who aren't actually followers of Jesus Christ, even adult members who were baptized after making a profession of faith yet it was not valid, and they did not truly believe. And so every church is made up of people who claim to follow Jesus, but don't, and those who claim and do. And so a church's membership, we believe, includes those who have professed Jesus as Savior and their children. We do not want to hinder the children from coming to Christ, being a part of His covenant family. They are the children of God's eternal children. And the children of God's eternal children are always special to him. They have a special place in God's redemptive plan. If you, don't, if you want to see some really great evidence of this, go to 1 Corinthians 7. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, you have an interesting uh, passage there. The, the, the question is over divorce, and can a person leave their spouse who does not believe in Christ and follow him? So, you know, maybe, you, maybe both were not Christians, but the wife or the husband become a Christian, and they're saying, you know, this guy no longer, he doesn't believe, can I leave them now, <laughs> you know? And Paul's answer to the husbands and wives who were Christians was no. If that spouse would have you be with them, stay in that home. And then here's his justification. He says, do you not understand that your presence in the home, and listen to these words carefully, he says, your presence in the home makes your husband, your unbelieving husband, your unbelieving wife, your unbelieving children, your presence makes them, ready for the word, holy. Holy. What's he getting at here? And not holy in the sense of 
just because you're a believer, now they are accepted into the eternal reward of God and viewed as eternally righteous? No. But holy, they are set apart. They are consecrated to God. They are important to God. They receive blessings and benefits and rewards because of that Christian wife and mom or Christian husband and dad that they would not receive otherwise. God loves the children of his eternal children. And so as a result, we pour out our lives for them. They present, and this is why they're so important to God, they present and they, they represent the next generation of Christians, of pastors, of leaders, of missionaries, of disciple makers, of office elders and deacons and all the servants of God. This is who they are. So there's this great covenantal assurance that God would include our children in the new covenant community and his church. There's also a covenantal opportunity that through us, our children will hear God's call to salvation. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. And notice the second half of the verse, and everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. You know, we raise our children in this new covenant community. We make them a member, not a communing member, but a member of this new covenant community because we believe that ultimately God will call them to faith in Jesus Christ, as we saw with Libby this morning. Believers should look to God, expecting Him to forgive their children of their sins at the appointed time to redeem them and to bring them into the family of God. They should look to God in faith, expecting the sins of their children to have been forgiven by the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. This is an important concept, especially important for all of you who have lost a child, perhaps during pregnancy or perhaps in childhood, or perhaps you have a child who is mentally incapacitated and not able to really understand the, the truth of the gospel and all of its import. How about these children? Do we have any right to believe that we will be with them in eternity? And I would say to you unequivocally that God loves the children of his children. And that when Jesus died on the cross for your sins, mom and dad, I believe passionately based upon the scriptures and because of these covenantal promises that you should expect that when Jesus was dying for your sins, he was dying for the sins of your children. And you can believe and you can trust in this promise. So if you've lost a child in whatever way, or you have a child and you wonder, are they even able to comprehend? Trust in the goodness of God. Because salvation, as he says, it comes from the Lord himself. God is the one who's in charge of salvation. And if Jesus died on the cross for the sins of your child, you have every assurance that you will spend eternity with your child in heaven. But the normal course of family life, those of us who, you know, we predecease our children, right? The normal rhythms of life. God has decreed something a little differently. God has decreed that we parents are the primary disciples of our children and that we are the instruments that he is going to use to bring them to Christ. 
call them to Christ, to repentance and to faith as Acts 2.38 speaks of. You know, this is something that is, goes all the way back to the Old Testament. The roots are there. This, this mandate that we have as dads and moms and as parents. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your what? Children. The Shema puts this before us, that parents, our calling is to be used by God. Our calling is to be the primary disciples of our children, the instruments that he uses to bring them to saving faith. So parents, let me encourage you, don't surrender this call to another person. Don't give up this honor to anyone else. Pursue the salvation and the sanctification of your children with the entirety of your being. This is your first and highest calling as parents to see them come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. Mom and dad, as this goal as we put before you as church leaders, would you begin to pray right now? Would you begin to pray and ask God, plead with God, God, would you give me the pleasure, the honor of leading my child to Christ? Would you give me the honor of one day sitting down with my child and hearing them pray and confess their sinfulness and their need for a Savior and see them put their trust in Jesus Christ. Parents begin to pray, pursue this, and when they come to Christ, bring them to me, bring them to the elders. We, have, we do this for a spiritual sanity check, right? Because sometimes as moms and dads, we may read into what's being said. We may coach our children a little too much, and our children will parrot, parrot back to us exactly what we want to hear. But when there was a Pastor Jerry at McDonald's over a milkshake, sometimes they don't know what they're talking about. And it's a good sanity check that we're able to turn back to you and say, okay, God's working in their heart and his life is obvious. Continue on, press on. And sometimes, I'll tell you, I'm sitting there with these little kids and I'm having a, an ice cream cone. And I'm just in awe of how God is working in the lives of our littlest children and what clear testimonies of saving faith they give. It is so precious to see this happen. So parents, and when you believe that your children have come to Christ, you bring them to us. Let us talk with them. Let us prepare them for communion. And let us bring them before the entire church to rejoice with you over what God has done. You are called by God to be the discipler and the primary instrument. Don't surrender this. Don't surrender it to anyone, not even to your church. The church is not a replacement for parents. We cannot replace you, mom and dad. We are not a replacement for parents. What we are is we are an important partner with you. You know, this is important. This is necessary for a number of reasons. Um, those of you who are older, how many of you, your children are grown and out of the house? Raise your hands. Okay, let me talk to you first. Do you remember what that was like? I mean, I was watching a young family the other day, and Catherine and I looked at each other, and she said, I, I, I couldn't do this anymore. I would be a, I, they would wear me out. 
You know, I go to bed at eight o'clock now. You know, couldn't, do you remember how exhausting it was to be a parent? You know, this is why you have to have parents. I mean, you know, we have the energy when we're in our 20s. We wish we had the wisdom of our 50s and 60s, you know, but that's why grandparenting is so nice, right? Right? But do you remember how exhausting it was? Um, hey, how many of you were parents and yet you were a new believer on top of that? I mean, you're still trying to figure out this whole Christianity thing. You're, you're, you are yourself a spiritual infant raising human infants. How are you supposed to do that and be successful spiritually? Church, we have to recognize that we have the whole continuum of people in our church, from the new Christian to the one who's been a Christian for 70 years. And so when you think about it, if you're a parent and you're a relatively new Christian, you don't even have your own act together yet. You need some help. You need someone to come alongside of you and partner with you as you raise those children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And that's what our church does, is partnering with parents to give all of us an opportunity to help raise the next generation, whether they're our kids or someone else. Let's do something real quick this morning. You know, covenant, we are, we are covenantal at covenant. This idea of the new covenant, this is part of who we are. We're not just reformed as a church, we're covenantal. And those two labels, if you're not familiar with them, come talk to me later, they're, they're important. But let's do a, an experiment real quick. If you are involved in one of the discipleship ministries of our children or our youth, in other words, you're up here on a, on a Wednesday night or a Sunday night working in our discipleship ministries, Voyagers, Edge, Encounter, etc. I want you to stand up. If you're involved in that in any way, stand up, come on. Right? Stay standing. Voyagers, teenagers, whatever. Okay? Cool. All right? If you teach in our Christian school, another Christian school, in our public schools, you're involved in the lives of our children, stand up. Okay? If you volunteer as a, on a regular basis in Covenant Cove on Sunday morning, stand up. Everybody stay standing. Stay standing. Okay? All right, final category, and oh, are we ever thankful for this category. When you're on the list and it's your turn in the nursery, you actually go in and you do it. Stand up. Stay standing. Everybody stay standing. Okay? Look around you. The majority of our congregation this morning is involved in the lives of our children in some way or another. Praise the Lord. Amen. That's good. Thank you. You can be seated. Covenant is covenantal. It makes sense why we would have our children be a part of our church's vision. And the primary way that we partner with parents is to first equip you through teaching and training and legendary parents and, and offering up resources. The other way is to provide environments where your children will experience the gospel within the context of biblical community. And they will get that gospel from a variety of voices. And how important it is for our children to hear the gospel from a variety of voices, especially when they go through all those awkward phases of life. So we have an assurance that comes with this covenant. We have an opportunity. And finally, I would suggest to you that we have a covenantal focus. In verse 36, the Bible says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain 
that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, when they heard this, and underline this phrase, they were cut to the heart. Underline that. They heard this, this sermon, for this new covenantal sermon, and what was the response? They were cut to the heart and said to the Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Peter preaches this sermon to these lost Israelites, and they interacts, he interacts with them, and the way he interacts with them is informative for us who are involved in the lives of children, either as physical parents or spiritual parents. The very first thing you see is that Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit. How important this is. I would say it's the primary importance as moms and dads and workers who interact with our children that we are filled with the Spirit. He magnified Jesus. He confronted sin, but not just the surface sin. As he talked to them about crucifying the Lord Jesus and blaspheming them, he went to their heart What was driving that external sin was a state of sinfulness at the heart, and he explained to them what was going on. He explained the gospel and the redemptive plan of God, and he gave these people tangible, biblical answers to their questions and solutions to what they were facing. And so the result of all this is they were cut to the heart. I'm sure that Peter brought this message with lots of emotion, but emotion does not cut to the heart alone. All of these things have to be in place, mom and dad. We bring the truth of the gospel. We magnify Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit. We address the sin in our children's lives, and we show them and we explain to them how this relates to their creator and the result is that we believe they will be cut to the heart. This is important for us to give and understand. Jonathan mentioned a second ago in in advocating that book by Paul Tripp that we want to put these resources in your hands because we are not after behavior modification, right? God doesn't give us these precious children so that we can modify their behavior, He doesn't give us these precious children so that we can give them the best education possible so they can go to the great college and get a great job and make a lot of money and become prosperous and well off. That is not why God gives us these children. Our children's need is no less than the need of this original audience that Peter is preaching to. The sinfulness The sinfulness and the hard-heartedness of our children sent Jesus to the cross just as much as the rebellious, blasphemous hearts of of these Israelites who shouted, crucify him. As beautiful as little Libby is, and we delight in baptizing her and bringing her into our community, the fact is, right now, as an infant, She is fallen and broken by sin. Her heart will be filled with rebellion against God. And mom and dad's role is to address that heart. Because this is the heart that we come into this world with. To bring gospel restoration to our children, we have to focus on their hearts. Mom and dad... This is such a more difficult job than behavior modification. 
You can discipline a child into being a gentleman and a little lady. You can have boundaries and restrictions and parameters, and you can train them almost like you train a pet to respond to you in certain ways. That is not our calling. Our calling is not to raise little gentlemen and ladies who are well-educated and prosperous. Our calling is to address the sinfulness and the hard-heartedness of our children. And so as we disciple them, as we raise them, as we mentor them, when we work with them in ministries here, church understand, parents understand, our focus is on their heart. And the single best thing you can do with a mom and dad and start when they don't even understand the English language is you pray for them and you pray with them and you teach them the scriptures and you repent before them when you sin and you let them see the gospel at work at your own life you let them see your own brokenness by sin your own need for a savior and you bring them to the foot of the cross as you go to the foot of the cross for the sanctifying grace that we all need. I tell you, when you do this, it's difficult. It's humiliating. There is a part of us as parents that is humiliating to go to our children and say, Johnny, would you forgive me? The way daddy spoke was sin. It was wrong. I should never have said that. When you do this, I promise you, the Holy Spirit uses it in the heart of your children, and they will get the gospel. Lord Jesus, make us that kind of parent, this kind of church, where we live authentically before our children in such a way that they see not only our need as mom and dads for the gospel, they see their own need Lord, may they see a spirit-given humility in us as parents and in leaders. Give us the wisdom that we need to nurture and shepherd their little hearts towards the gospel. Lord, we thank you for all of our children that you give us. And we ask as a church that over these next several years, would you let us have 50 wonderful families who we get to celebrate with as they bring a child into the kingdom and they begin a new generation of Christian families. We thank you for your mercy in our own lives, Lord. We thank you for calling us to you and making us your children. We thank you that you love the children of your eternal children. Help us to love them well and serve them well. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.